The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. So Romans 15 and verse 4 reminds us of, of this truth. Now the scriptures, for everything that was written in the past, was written so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And this summer, as we go through, kind of work our way through mostly the Old Testament stories, the people that God wanted us to know about, to read about, to learn from, we recognize that it's very intentional, the lives that have been recorded and the circumstances of their lives. And it's given for one reason, that is to teach us. And so when I read about Abraham, when I read about Jonah, when I read about Daniel, when I read about David, when I'm reading about all these people, I'm realizing that this is trying to tell me something. It's trying to teach me something. It's something I can grab a hold of because most of us, we all learn better from stories, right? From, um, from the, uh, the ability to see lives and how circumstances and how principles are, are uh, formed through lives living, lived. And so that's, that's uh, the intent of this summer is just to kind of walk through some of the lives of the, uh, the, the people through Scripture. Abraham and Jacob, we've uh, spent time. Those are monumental people to try to look at in just a short time and to see everything from their lives. But... I remind you, we ended with Jacob, and he's, he's had a new lease on life as he's wrestled with God and has changed his name, and the rest of his life was different. Um, he went from deceiver to uh, now the father of the 12, 12 tribes of Israel. But as you would read through the last chapters of his life and the ending years of his life, we recognize one thing that stands out to me, and I just want to mention it to you before I move on. And um, as, as much as God helped Jacob to become this patriarch of the faith, Jacob was a pitifully poor father. And we see that sometimes in Scripture. David I mean, all of us, probably David's most of our favorite guy in Scripture. We identify with him. David was a pitifully poor father. And Jacob was just, he was 
absent. He was passive. When things would happen in the family dynamic, he would not take a leading role. It was like he would shrink back from teaching his children what they needed to see, from providing the discipline that they needed to have. It's just a reminder on Father's Day that our families, our culture desperately needs active, engaged, strong fathers who are involved in their children's lives. So often it can be easy for fathers to uh, get wrapped up in what they're doing, their work, and their, their other efforts, that it can be easy for them to disengage from the family and, and just kind of be there but not be there, right? And um, the scriptures are telling us that when that happens, our children's, our families suffer. And we see even from the life of Jacob that the consequences of his not taking a strong leadership father role in the family, it created a lot of dysfunction. I mean, we read where we read an account in these chapters of the end of Jacob's life where one of his daughters is actually raped. And instead of Jacob taking the leadership role in that situation, it's almost like as we read through the account, it's almost like he worried more about um, his social standing than he did about coming to his daughter's aid and and standing up for her. In fact, he did such a poor job in this situation that his own boys, his own boys did something about it instead of Jacob. We see things like, you know, Jacob, his oldest son, his oldest son, Reuben, ends up having sexual relationships with one of his wives, one of his wives. And he's silent, he does nothing. And it just created this whole family dynamic where words literally like deception, intrigue, anger, rivalry, rebellion, out of control, jealousy, all of these things were present in Jacob's family. And a lot of it, I think, can be contributed to his poor leadership, his poor um, example, his, his not being a strong father figure. And so it's in that kind, of, that kind of scenario that we're introduced to one of his sons. Genesis chapter 37, verse three, would read this way. Now Israel, that's Jacob, right? Name change, father of, an, or, uh, father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Again, this guy is not winning father of the year anytime soon. Again, he shows favoritism toward one of his children. Uh, you will see this in scripture a lot too. That never works out. It always, is, it always brings onto the family poor relationships. It brings dysfunction into the family. And here's Jacob. He loves Joseph. Now remember, Joseph is that first son that he has with Rachel. It's number 11 of the 12. He's waited so long with Rachel to have a child. She was barren, remember? And finally she has one and they named him Joseph. And he loves Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And here's what he does. He makes an ornate robe for him, right? You remember this from Sunday school? The coat of many colors, right? 
I, I was reading about this robe, and you know, we all have a picture of it. And it was expensive, it was extravagant. I mean, it was like when Joseph walked in the room with this on, I mean, you took notice and you recognized that is favor, that is blessing, that is, I mean, this is, but I, I read more about this robe and I actually, the, the, the language that's used, this Hebrew word is actually a word used for wrists and ankles. And, and what it's trying to say is this robe was a robe that, that went all the way down to his wrist. It was long-sleeved. And it was long, and then it went all the way to his ankles. Now, in that day, normal garb and apparel was a tunic. And, and because there was so much physical labor, everything you did to get water took labor. Everything was physically demanded. They would wear tunics, right, that were sleeveless, and they were short, right? So you could have freedom of movement and the hot and, and all your labor you're doing. Well, here's Joseph walking around in something that is to his ankles, and, or to his ankles, to his ankles, are you paying attention? To his wrists and to his ankles. And basically, it's kind of the connotation that not only did Joseph have the favor of his father, but guess what? I don't think Joseph had to do a lot of work. And you know what? That doesn't ever sit well. Amen? You ever lived in the family dynamic? And, right? So the 12 brothers, not only are they dealing with the favoritism of their father, but Joseph kind of gets by with stuff that they don't. And this is what we read in verse four. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And they could not even speak a kind word to him. Listen, this isn't Joseph's bad, okay? He can't help that his dad loves him like this, right? He can't help that he's the favorite. Now, verse five is maybe the only thing in Joseph's life where I can say, Joseph, eh. Joseph maybe makes the problem a little bit worse, though. You see, we read that Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. So he had this dream where the crops in a field, um, his crops stood up tall and the other's crops fell down as if they were worshiping his crops. I know to us it's a big deal, you know. To them that was like a big deal. Well, then he, they, they don't like that because the connotation of what he's saying is one of these days you guys are gonna bow down to me, okay? Think about that, how that would go over in your family if you walked in and said, you know, he makes it worse by having another dream. And in this dream, the moon and the sun and 11 stars bow down to him. You know, even Jacob takes note of this and is like, I get what you're saying that me and, and your family are all gonna bow down to you. And so he kind of aggravates this, right? Just a little bit. But you get a picture of a dysfunctional family where they can't even say a kind word to him. Every day, in and out. So it's in this family dynamic we're introduced to Joseph. We read that the, the, the boys are taking care of the family business and they're tending to the livestock. And as they would move them and graze them from place to place, they came to a place called Shechem. 
Shechem was the place where their sister had been raped and where the boys had sought vengeance on the people who had done that. And Jacob realizes all the boys are down by Shechem and he starts to get anxious about, you know, those people do not like us for what we did to them. Um, And so he begins, begins to be worried. And so he says, you know what, Joseph? Joseph, who is where? He's at home. (laughs) He's wearing his robe, walking around, living the high life. He says, Joseph, why don't you go down and check on your brothers? I'm just a little anxious about them. And you remember we read in the story that it goes like this, that as he got close to them and he's wearing that robe, they see him from a distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. So they begin to have, this is really dysfunctional, isn't it? Like me and my brother are super competitive, okay? And I I will not say that that hasn't led to maybe a physical altercation or two in our life. Especially on the basketball court, right? Where we just, you know. Never one time, one iota, one speck of a thought have I ever thought, I'm gonna take this guy out. This this, This is bad news, right? They're plotting to kill him. Reuben, the oldest, though, somehow in his mind, he's like, hey, I got an opportunity here. I'm in really bad with my dad, right? (laughs) When you sleep with one of your dad's wives, relationships probably aren't very good, right? And so he's thinking, you know what? I'm gonna convince them. Yes, we'll kill him. We'll kill him by not, you know, taking his life, whatever they're gonna do. We'll throw him in a pit, and we'll leave him there. And he's gonna die, no water, it's hot, it's arid. Um, he'll die. And what I'll do is I'll convince the others to take him out this way. And then when we leave, I'll go back, I'll rescue him, I'll take him back to dad, and I'll be a hero. I saved the favored son. And all of a sudden, me and dad might be good again. Now, I'm not sure Reuben was thinking when he gets back and he tells dad that the other 10 tried to kill, you know, just a wow you know, again, Jerry Springer here type thing. So they throw him in the pit. And then we read in the scriptures that they all sit down and have a big meal. Like, these guys are calloused. Yeah, it's a rough crew. And as they're eating, and Jacob's somewhere, I don't know where he's at. I hope they didn't eat the meal like looking down at him. I wouldn't put it past them. But um, a caravan comes through of, of slave owners headed toward Egypt. And Judah, in his mind, thinks, you know what? We can do even better than this. We can make some money off this. And you remember, they decide to pull him out, sell him off. I want to remind you that Joseph is really undeserving of any of this. He really is. He's not done anything. You remember the story goes that he's sold, he's headed that way, The boys take his robe, they kill an animal, they put blood all over it. They go back to Jacob and they say, Jacob, Joseph died on the way out to tell us. We found his robe, he must have gotten killed by a wild animal. And we read that the story of Joseph goes, he ends up as a slave. So he's been mistreated by his family and now he's sold into slavery in a place of people he's totally foreign. We would read though, in chapter 38 or 39, these words, the Lord 
was with Joseph. We would read that four times in his story. The Lord is with Joseph. You know, we believe that God has sovereignly chosen roles for our lives. He's sovereignly chosen how you've been made up and knit you in your mother's womb. He sovereignly has given you gifts and talents. And so, obviously, God had a plan for Joseph's life. But Joseph, it's obvious, it's obvious from the way he responds all through his life that he was in a cooperating relationship with the Lord. It was him and the Lord. And the Lord was with him and didn't leave him and was gonna be beside him, but Joseph opened himself up to that relationship. It's so obvious by the choices he makes. And we read that when he was, the Lord was with him so that when he gets to Egypt, he prospers. And he lives in the house of his Egyptian master. And you see, Joseph lived with such integrity, had so much character, that when his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, he found favor in the Egyptian master's eyes and became the head of his whole house. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted him to his care, into his care, everything that he owned. This Potiphar character is a seasoned military veteran. He is a, you know, I don't know, think about a four-star general in our culture. A guy who literally in that society had the power over life and death. And he quickly identifies Joseph as someone who is favorable who is capable, who is accomplished. And as we read through the details of that story, it ends up to the place where he literally says, Joseph, you have such character, you're so responsible that here you go, you just manage my whole house. We read that the only thing that Potiphar worried about was what he was gonna eat when he came home. See, Joseph is making the best out of a bad situation, is he not? Instead of being bitter, disillusioned, jaded, um, probably becoming like a lot of the other slaves, living like life was meaningless, living with not any purpose, just you know, getting, trying to experience every kind of pleasure or whatever because life just stunk. And this was all he was gonna, Joseph chooses to, because he's walking with the Lord, chooses to make the best of his bad situation. And you would say, wow, good story. He landed on his feet, made the best of it. Looks like he's doing pretty well, even though he's a slave. When we read this, the story goes on. Verse six would say this. But Joseph was well built, and he was handsome. He was a good looking dude. And after a while, Potiphar's wife took notice of Joseph. I don't know how long this was. I don't know, that we don't really know the details of this. Like, did she flirt with him for a while? Or that culture was, is different than ours. He's a slave too, so it, basically she just cuts right to the chase at some point, right? And she says, come to bed with me. I want you to think about this for a moment. He is so far from home, he is restricted, in so many ways, and this 
opportunity comes into his life. No doubt that if he would have taken this opportunity, it wouldn't have been a big deal. It wouldn't have caused a ripple, wouldn't have, okay, you know what I mean? But the Lord was with Joseph, right? He has this ongoing relationship with the Lord. And in that moment, he responds to her in this way. I can't. For one, I can't do that to your husband. And two, furthermore, I can't do that to my God. This is incredible. He is God conscious in this moment. You know, Bonhoeffer says this about temptation because there is no doubt that Joseph was tempted by the moment, okay? In temptation, Bonhoeffer would say this, at that moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses reality and only the desire becomes real. James talks about temptation and it helps us understand this. But temptation has an ability to create in us, if we are not walking with the Lord, it absolutely, God consciousness is gone in those moments. And all we can see, it's either, as Bonhoeffer would go on to say, we either see sexual desire, or we see ambition, or we see love of fame, love of power, We see greed for money. We see revenge. In those moments, God consciousness can be, it can easily slip away. And all we can do is fixate. We have a tendency as human beings to be captivated by whatever is being offered to us or whatever opportunity we can take. And Joseph shows us that in the midst of that, and really what would have been just a, honestly a passing affair, a passing fling, that still the Lord is with him. He is God conscious in, the, in his situation. And he says, No. The story goes that Potiphar's wife presses him day in and day out. Strong words here. Basically, she is absolutely after him all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. And yet, he remains consistent. No, no, no. Now, the story goes, and it seems like she set this up, the scenario, but they end up just the two of them in the house, right? And she's more emboldened. She grabs him. And again, propositions him. And Joseph does what the New Testament tells us to do. He runs. You see, the best strategy against temptation is to run. It's not to try to rationalize it. It's not to try to um, logically work through. Most of the time, logic is hanging by a thread when we're tempted. We're gonna lose that every time. When you know you are tempted by something that is 
contrary to God's will for your life, the best thing is to get as far away from it as you possibly can and then to avoid it at all costs. You say, that sounds simple. It is, but it's something that we struggle with. We do. And we also, we try to prove why we can't. The Bible just says run, just run. He flees, remember? He runs so fast, so hard, gets out of there so, that he runs out right out of his coat. <laughs> he just takes off. And she's left with his garment. The phrase is, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Isn't it? That's what's happened here. It's finally come to that point where she realizes he's not on board. He keeps rejecting me. She feels rejected. She's angry. And she just, she's scorned in that moment. And she just starts screaming and she makes up the story, right? Joseph he tried to rape me, tried to come on to me. Now, I don't believe Potiphar totally believed her. You know why? Because he could, he had the power over life and death. And no doubt he had executed people before. And somebody tries, to, a slave tries to rape his wife. What's gonna probably be in Egyptian culture his course of action? You got about three more breaths, buddy. You better say your last prayers, right? He doesn't. It's interesting part of the story. He sends him to jail. And now Joseph, it's right in this moment that I'm thinking, God, now's the time to act in the guy's life. Day after day, he's done what is right in difficult circumstances. He's here, not his fault. He's made the best of it. Now he's, this is going on. God, where are you? Step in, do something. And yet God doesn't. God waits. And now Joseph, not only has he been mistreated by his family, he has now been unfairly or unjustly accused. And he ends up in jail. You remember the story of Joseph's life goes like this. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. While Joseph was there in the prison, guess what? The Lord was with him. He's not giving up. He's not giving up on the Lord. And the Lord's definitely never gonna give up on him. And he showed him kindness and he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Guess what, this guy is exceptional. And as soon as he gets there, or some little time he's there, just like at Potiphar's house, leaders can see this guy is capable. And the way the story goes is by the time he's in prison for a while, he's head over the prison. <laughs> the warden has him doing all his work and taking leadership and directing things and managing things. What a guy. I mean, I think by this time I might have went over in the corner and sucked my thumb and given up. Right? He doesn't. We read that while he's in there, he's in the, the, the king's prisoners, kind of a, I don't know if it was maximum security or if it was just more a higher profile guys. I think it was more high profile guys. 
Well, he's in there with some of the king's servants who the king or Potiphar had gotten mad at. The guy, his cupbearer and his baker. And while he's in there, there came a point where both of them had dreams. And Joseph, who kind of had a, <laughs> you know, a history with dreams. He said, well, tell me. I, I, the Lord will help me to tell you what your dream means. Remember that? And the guy, with the, cut, the guy that was the king's cupbearer, Pharaoh's cupbearer, said, hey, this grapes were squeezed into this cup and Pharaoh drank the cup and on and on. And basically Joseph said, hey, you got a good dream. It's gonna be soon and you're gonna have, you're gonna get back, you're gonna get out of here. You're going back. The baker has this weird dream, three baskets on his head and bread in it and you know, I mentioned this in first service. Aren't you glad? <laughs> I believe God still speaks to people in dreams, okay? I just, some, this week, I heard a missionary talk about it. it happened like a year or two ago. I still believe that happens. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm not on that list, though. Are any of you like me? I have the weirdest dreams in the world. Like, I wake up and think, What? Like, I haven't thought about that person in 20 years, and why was this person in my dream and that person, right? Like, I'm glad that I don't have to depend as much on dreams now to tell me what God's trying to tell me, because it would be some really weird stuff. Anybody like you? Anybody like that? Weird dreams? I do, man. But he says, hey, this is a bad dream for you. You're not going to make it, because the birds were eating the bread and basically saying, you're going to die. And sure enough, Baker dies, cupbearer lives. And you would think that by this time the cupbearer would have some appreciation for Jacob. And we would read in the last verse of chapter 39, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And we read in the first verse of chapter 41, when the two years had passed, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was forgotten for two full years. I want you to listen to this. Because, you know, often we'll say things like, we kind of make a joke of it. Don't say things are going to get, this can't get any worse, right? And what do we say? Oh, don't say that. Right? Because we've kind of experienced. The minute we say, this can't get any worse, that's Joseph's life. All right? Mistreated by family, sold into slavery, makes the best of a bad situation, is unjustly accused, goes to prison, makes the best of a bad situation, and now he is absolutely forgotten. You see, it goes from all the way from family mistreating him to basically being abandoned. Nobody even knows who he is. And no one cares. Consistent with how God works in our lives, God was doing a work in Joseph even after setback after setback after setback. The Lord was with him, but the Lord was doing a work in him. It's C.S. Lewis that reminds us that God whispers to us in our pleasures. I sense God in, in the good things. 
He speaks to us in our conscience. But God shouts to us in our pain. And often it's in those adverse situations and toughest times that we experience that we hear God's voice, God's direction, God's leadership in our lives the most. And the scriptures teach us that as a believer, that in the bad times, actually God does his most thorough work in our lives. If we will allow him, and if we'll have the same kind of relationship Joseph had with the Lord, the Lord was with him, that when we are faced with setbacks, We actually grow from them. Our character is developed. And we are refined like fire. And Joseph is now to a point where God has allowed setback after setback, adversity after adversity, that Joseph is ready for what God wants to do with him. And we read that Pharaoh has a dream. The cupbearer remembers. There was a guy in prison that Joseph gets to go before Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dream in such a beautiful, thorough way that Pharaoh is so impressed, he says, that's right. And also the one thing that stands out to me is standing before him is this guy who can tell him what he's dreaming, but he's of such character and integrity that Pharaoh is moved by this guy to say, you know what, you are the guy to take care of this for me. This is incredible. By this time in my life, or in your life probably, we are so jaded that we aren't helping anybody. And Joseph still maintains character, integrity. He becomes the second person in all of the the kingdom of Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh. God prepared him for this success. I would notice one key phrase in that dialogue with Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, tell me the dream. And Joseph replies this. And this is how, this is where Joseph's life came to. Verse 16. I cannot do it. But God. See those words? Joseph was accomplished. Everywhere he went, everything he did was successful. But yet God has brought him to a point in his life where he lives day in and day out with this mindset. I cannot, but God will. And if you want to live past mediocre, mundane, average, If you want to experience a life that has significant significance, purpose, that makes a difference, then you are called to have that same kind of mindset. This humility of heart and life that truly understands that where my help comes from, where my ability comes from, and what I'm ultimately trusting in each and every day is I cannot but God can in me and with me. People that live like that, their lives absolutely explode. 
And we talk about them at their funerals and talk about the impact, the significance they've had in so many lives. God used those setbacks in Joseph's life to bring him to live with just a humility. See, I think he was kind of arrogant and cocky. Hey, guys, you guys are gonna bow down to me. Now he's at a point where he's like, I can't do it, but God will. Such a beautiful story. You remember then the rest of the chapters of his life. They simply read where he's in charge, famine hits, the whole world, verse 57, or verse 57 of chapter 41, says all the world came to Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe everywhere. Well, guess what? Where it was also severe. It was also severe where his 11 brothers and his father lived. Guess who ended up having to go to Egypt? Guess who ended up getting an audience before the most powerful man besides Pharaoh in the land? And you can read through those chapters, 43, 44, kind of an interplay of how that goes. And Joseph kind of tests them, kind of, but ultimately it comes down to this. He reveals himself to them. In verse, uh, verse two of chapter 45, we read this. Joseph weeps so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. And as he, get, he reveals himself, hey, I'm Joseph. He says these words, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. The setbacks, the adversity of Joseph's life had worked so thoroughly in his character that now in a moment where you kind of would want to go, wham! Kind of go, hmm. He's changed. He's softened. He's full of compassion. God's work in him was thorough. And in a moment where he wanted, when he could have had revenge, he doesn't. I shared in the first service, and somebody teased with me afterwards, but I got to be honest, I'm a sucker for revenge. I love revenge movies. I do. Somebody told me afterwards, well, I'm not gonna make you mad. I just do. I love that. I love the guy getting and coming back, right? And It's kind of alarming. My wife worries about it, and I actually pray about it, so I avoid those kind of movies now. Because it's just like, yeah! Get them! So maybe I'd have been tempted to say, you know what? I remember what it was like to be in that pit. And I remember what it was like to be a slave. And I remember what it was like to be in jail. And you know what? You're gonna get to experience some of that. No. Such a beautiful story. And I just would remind you of these things from Joseph's life. Setbacks, because I think his life is, a, is a exhibit A on adversity. His whole life was adversity until he got to be older. Setbacks come undeserved. You can do every right thing, you can live right, and still and will face adversity. Jesus said in this world, you're gonna have trouble. 
Adversity doesn't mean that you've done something wrong or that God is absent in your life. Adversity comes to us all. Setbacks come undeserved. Now, I can bring setbacks into my own life, but they also just come. Second thing, setbacks help to prove character. It's when things are rough that our true character is revealed. Who you really are is when the going gets tough and you are facing adversity. And how you respond to that and how you treat people in the middle of that and how you uh, walk with God through that reveals character. And so often people, their character is revealed. Adversity comes and they quit on God. They mistreat people. They turn to other things to try to, you know, fill some kind of the void. They don't, they don't, they just run. They avoid. Adversity setbacks prove out character. And Joseph, he had a rough road every time. Every time the way he responded was right. And you know why? The Lord was with him. That ongoing relationship with the Lord sustained him all of his life. And for you and I, the only way we're gonna respond with character and adversity is because of that ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. The other thing is, the next thing is, setbacks call for a long trust. Adversity calls sometimes for a long trust. What I mean by that is, a lot of times our adversity doesn't change overnight. Sometimes it gets worse. And all through Joseph's life, he didn't quit on God. He trusted even when it went from bad to worse to worstest. Is that a word? Setbacks, adversity call for us to maintain a long trust. But I would remind you of this, just like in Joseph's life, setbacks prepare us for success. There are story after story, people you know in our culture that we all know that would testify, you could read their books, you can listen to their stories that will tell you they can never do what they're doing today if they hadn't faced the hardships and the trials of yesterday. Trials and setbacks, adversity, give us great opportunity to grow as people, to develop character, to be humbled in such a way that then we are so useful down the road. So don't be discouraged right now in the middle of your setback. It's a great opportunity for you down the road. That's what the scriptures say, count it all joy. James says, when you go through trials, because the trials are going to work in you, character. And Joseph was ready to be second in command in Egypt because he had been humbled. And I would remind you that setbacks soften our hearts 
for compassion. Be merciful as God is merciful. And for a lot of us, sometimes that takes adversity to soften our hearts. Teach us. And it creates in us a compassion that just shows who God is. And Joseph, instead of acting out in revenge to his brothers, he acts compassionately with us. And the last thing, this is what Joseph said of his life in chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Joseph reminds us that setbacks remind us that God always has a plan. Just because your life is facing adversity right now does not mean that God has abandoned you, forgotten you, and is not gonna use that in your life. And Joseph realized, hey, my life, the first 40 years of that was pretty rough. But God had a plan. And he reminds us that setbacks Keep us thinking, what is God going to do with this? Father, help us to learn from Joseph's life. Help us to grow in our own understanding of what it is to face adversity. And Lord, help Joseph's example to encourage us in how to respond to adversity. Thank you that you're patient with us and that we always know that you have a plan. Lord, help us to have a long trust in that. Thank you for the life of Joseph that shows us the way to go and the life to live. Encourage us today that adversity never, never, never wins in a Christian's life. Keep us confident, believing, trusting, and following you all the days of our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Have a great week. Happy Father's Day.